Okay, first, uh, Romans chapter 8. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Indications That God Is For Us, Part 3. And let me start off by reading the passage um, as we've been so doing over the last uh, couple times we've been in this text. In Romans 8:28, Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? What we have seen is that, you know, Paul states some wonderful truths in verses 28, 29 and 30. Uh, He then in verse 31 refers back to all that he has said by using the words these things he then, immediately after, re-expresses these things in a succinct way with the words, God is for us. He'd say, if you want to sum up everything I have said in 28, 29, and 30, here it is, God is for us. And all that we're saying in these verses, 28, 29, and 30, is we're merely looking at different facets of this diamond of a truth that God is for us And the way we have been framing this is uh, inside of these verses are indications or proofs or evidences that God is for us who have believed in Christ and been saved through him. We guys, if we can believe this truth, I, I think if we can lock onto this and really understand these verses and this truth that God is for us, we might even be tempted to say almost nothing else matters if we believe These things, if we believe deep in our bones and our moments of trial and suffering and difficulty, frustration and disappointment and sin and failure, if we knew in such moments, in our moments of spiritual battle and as we're reaching out to others, if we knew in such moments that the God of the universe is for us, we knew that with full conviction It would make a huge difference. We would live better. We would perform better. We would relate to others better. We would relate to God better. We would live our lives better than we often do if we simply knew this to be true. In the week before the Super Bowl this year, I was reading, um, I don't know how I happened upon this, but I was reading uh, from some authors who wrote a book that had score casting in the title of the book. And they were talking about a study that had been done regarding the the advantage of home field for athletes and for athletic teams. And apparently they had nothing better to do with their time. So what they did is they they went as far back in all the major sports, soccer, football, basketball, baseball and hockey. And and they tracked whether the games were home games or away games and uh, they gave the results and what they were writing. It is a statistically observable phenomenon that home teams, by and large, more than half the time in all the major sports come out victorious. And they speculated that the reason for this is that we are social creatures. And it makes a difference to be in a stadium full of people that are for you. You tend to perform better. Athletes perform better surrounded by people that are for them. As an athlete myself, I could attest to this. Um, I'm joking there. Um, But they even uh, cited a study that was done in a German soccer league where um, they, they weren't content to just say home field versus away. They tried to gauge the different kinds of stadiums and what kind of home field advantage did they provide. And this is in the German Soccer League. So they they evaluated stadiums where there was a track around the field, which put the fans further away from the field of play. 
and measured the home field advantage at a stadium like that compared to a stadium where there was no track around the field, which brought the fans closer to the field of play. And sure enough, uh, they were able to observe that statistically it was observable that the teams that played in this league in stadiums where the fans were closer to the field performed better and won more games than those who had maybe just as many fans that were for them, but they were further away. Again, illustrating that we are social creatures and it makes a difference to to be surrounded by people that are for us. Given this fact, it should be very meaningful to us to be informed in a chapter like Romans 8 that the God of the universe is for you. As you go out and do whatever it is you're supposed to do this week, you have God who is for you and everything. Even when you fail, if you're a believer, God is for you. Heading into battle, God is for you. In the midst of frustration and hardship, suffering and trials, God is for you. You get this right and everything else tends to fall into place. You don't get this right. Everything begins to disassemble and truths that once were easy to hold on to begin to be elusive and they slip from your grasp. This is a core reality for us to hold on to and relish. There's a difference, though, between God being for us and a stadium full of fans that are for us. Many differences, one of which is that generally fans are helpless, right? They can paint their face, they can yell and scream and jump up and down all they want, but, but really, largely, for the most part, they are helpless. And they may want their team to win, but they do not have the power to take what they wish would happen and actually make that happen. Well, God is different. God is not just for us and he's cheering us on, but he can't really help us or execute whatever his plan is for us. God is for us and he is able to execute that forness. He's able to make it happen. What he wants to happen in our lives, he has the power to make it happen. And so this is an incredible truth that we ought to be preaching to ourselves every day. It make a dramatic difference in how we live our lives and respond to circumstances and relate to others. What we're going to do with the time we have this morning is look at three more indications of the fact that God is for us who are his people. Three more indications that God is for us who are his people. There's a total of seven, and we're going to look at the final three. We have learned already the first indication that God is for us is in verse 28, and that is that God causes all things to work together for good. He makes it happen. He executes what it is that he desires, and he makes everything work together for good. Aren't you glad Romans 8:28 does not say, and we know that God wishes all things would work together for good. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? I mean, that might bring some comfort if God said, hey, you know what? I can't really make this happen, but I just just so you know my heart, if I could, I would make everything work together for good. We'd be like, well, that that's helpful to know your heart, but it wouldn't bring a whole lot of comfort because he can't make it happen. But Paul says, no, God causes everything. He works everything together for good. He makes it happen. Nothing happens to us at all in any way that God cannot and does not work together for our good and his glory. We've learned also a second indication that he is for us, and that is that God intentionally knew us before we knew him. He made a decision before the world was created uh, to bring us into loving relationship with himself and to bring himself into loving relationship with us. Number three, a third indication, God predestined us to be conformed to Christ's image. Again, before the foundation of the world, he made a decision that he would save us. And in saving us, he made a decision to transform us, the objects of his salvation, to be like Christ. And we also saw that God predestined us to Christ-exalting community. 
We get to be a part of a family and not live as lone rangers off doing our own things. But he predestined us into the church, into a family, a large family of brothers and sisters where Jesus is our big brother. And we're all being made more and more like him in community with one another. We come this morning to the fifth indication that God is for us. And that is that God effectually called us to salvation. God effectually called us to salvation. Don't let that word effectually uh, throw you. I think it will become clear as we talk. But basically, God successfully called us to salvation. And not that it was successful because we made it successful. No, he made it successful. He called us and he made it happen that what he was calling us to would come into effect. That's what it means. Look what Paul says in Romans 8.30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And then he mentions call again. He says, and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I know that this verse is, uh, this section here is a section that theologians kind of wrestle over uh, and, f- and for good reason. And that there are some things in this passage that raise theological issues that, that legitimately born again children of God have disagreements over. What I want to try to do this morning is to stay as tethered to the text as we possibly can, fly as low to the text as possible. And I I think everything I'm going to say, most all of us are going to agree on, wherever you might be on the spectrum of understanding uh, salvation in terms of God's sovereignty and human accountability. Um, Look at Just looking at the text, here's three things that we know for sure if we're trying to figure out what this call is that's being spoken about. We know that whatever this call is, it's a call that goes to those who are predestined, right? Paul says in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So whatever the call is, it is a call that goes to those whom God is predestined to conform to the image of Christ and to be a part of a Christ exalting community. Those whom he is predestined, he called. So whatever this call is, it is a call that goes to those who are predestined We also can observe that whatever this call is, it is a call that results in justification and glorification, right? Does that seem fair to you? He says in verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called and these whom he called, he also justified and these whom he justified, he glorified. So whatever the call is, it is a call that seems to result in. And the recipients of the call getting justified and glorified. In other words, it results in the salvation of those who receive this particular call. We also can observe that whatever this call is, it is a call that puts a person inside the promise of verse 28. Romans 8, 28, you know, God causes everything to work together for good. That's honestly not a promise for every human being. That is a promise for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the same word there, called. So whatever this call is, it goes to those who are predestined. It results in the justification and glorification of the recipients of the call. And it results in them being placed squarely in the middle of the wonderful promise of verse 28. And just looking at this, and and maybe there's something I'm missing. If you understand this differently, and maybe you've got an issue with any of these statements that I've just made Talk to me afterwards, because I want to know if there's if there's some part of this that I'm, I'm not seeing. Um, but if this is true, uh, there, there are many commentators and interpreters of Scripture, theologians that they're not trying to make life complicated. They're just we got to try to deal honestly with what's stated in the text. It's forced them to wrestle with and try to give expression to what this call is. 
that's being spoken of. Clearly, in the New Testament, there is a universal gospel call that goes out to all men, right? Jesus says in Mark 16, you know, basically go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. So we are to go and deliver the gospel call to every person. Um, In Acts 17, I believe, Paul says God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. So there's a sense where this call, this gospel call goes out to all people. And yet, in this passage, Paul seems to be speaking of a narrower call. A call that goes to the predestined ones. A call that results actually in salvation and puts the recipient inside the promise of verse 28. And so theologians refer to this particular call as the effectual call. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, the powerful call. Say, well, what does that mean? Well, the life-giving call. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's say it this way. The call which, when delivered, accomplishes the very thing it calls forth from the recipient. Uh, In the gospel accounts, I was just reading this week, Jesus uh, encounters a funeral coming into Capernaum and there was a coffin. They were carrying the coffin of this, the coffin of this uh, dead young man. And Jesus touched the coffin and he spoke and said, arise. That wasn't just a call like, man, I sure hope he chooses to arise. No, it was a call that embodied within it was the accomplishing of the very thing that he was calling forth from the recipient. In the Old Testament, God looks at a valley of dry bones and he commands those bones to live and they live. Uh, In the creation account, God says, let there be light. And embodied in that command was the accomplishing of the very thing that was being commanded. God didn't say, let there be light. And he was like, I sure hope there will be light. No, let there be light. And in that command was the accomplishing of the very thing that was being commanded. And so that's what this is, that uh, when when we came to faith in Christ and we called upon the name of the Lord, the, the reason we came to Jesus and freely chose him and believed in him was in response to the reality of the fact that God was summoning us to him with a summons that actually accomplished what it was that he was calling forth from us. Uh, John Stott is one writer who says it this way. This is not in Romans eight the general gospel invitation, but the divine summons which raises the spiritually dead to life. Does that make sense? Um, I think in your notes there is um, a quote from Wayne Grudem as he gives a theological definition of this effectual call, and I'm going to show it on the screen. But this, I actually got this from Mike Berry's. Uh, doctrines class notes. Interestingly enough, they're talking in Sunday school today about election and the effectual call. Uh, So uh, I love the timing of that. I was able to send people in the first service over to Sunday school to get their questions answered that were being raised by the message. Uh, But let me let me quote from Mike Mike's notes here. And by the way, um, just so you know, whenever we as staff want to quote from Mike, um, like he's, he's real picky. We got to do it a certain way. We've got to give him full credit, um, and acknowledge that it came from, from him. And if we want to put that quote on a PowerPoint slide, good night, the logistics of that, or he, he's very exacting. Here's what I expect. Here's what you need to do. If you're going to quote from me and my notes. And so I said, I'd like to do that. And he said, well, here's what I, I need you to do. Um, to put on the slide. So I tried to honor all of his requests. Uh, so here's the quote. Um, so I, I've done due diligence here. So let's look at the quote. Here's how Grudem defines uh, the effectual call. It is an act of God, the father 
speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel. And that's an important element because it's not apart from the gospel. It's through the gospel proclamation that God works in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they willingly respond in saving faith. I think that's beautifully uh, said. Uh, in other words, we, in response to the call of God, we freely chose Jesus. You go back to the day of your conversion. We freely chose Jesus because we saw we needed him. We needed a savior. We wanted him. We were attracted to him. We saw his beauty and his power and willingness to save. And we freely chose him. It was the freest choice we ever made in our life. But our free choice of Christ in that moment was birthed out of the womb of God's effectual calling of us. God was saving us and bringing us to that point. This brings us face to face with the reality that is affirmed in Scripture of the sovereignty of God and salvation such that that we can't take any credit for ourselves that we believe in Jesus or have come to him. Jesus said a remarkable statement in John 6:44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's amazing. No one can even come to me. Those who come to me experience something supernatural. They get saved. But no one can even come to me unless the father do a miracle in drawing them to me. In John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you didn't choose me. But I chose you. He's not denying that they had any choice in the matter. He would affirm that they did choose him. But what he's saying is the real issue is not that you chose me, but that I chose you and your choice of me emerged from the rich matrix of my having chose you. It's a byproduct of my having chose you. Um, when you look throughout the New Testament, there are various ways that Christians are described disciples, believers, brethren, and so forth. But one of the titles that's frequently given to Christians is we are the called ones. We are the called ones. And it's talking about this particular call that Paul is speaking about in Romans eight. In fact, in Earlier in Romans, in Romans 1, 6, Paul is speaking to the Christians in the church of Rome, and he says, you are the called of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, just as one other example, he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. He's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, Christ and him crucified is moronic foolishness. But to those who are the called ones. Okay, so it's got to be talking about this call that Paul is referring to in Romans 8. To those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In fact, aside from how often you see Christians described as the called ones in the New Testament, you actually see it everywhere inside of the Greek word for church. Over 70 times there's reference in the New Testament to the church, which every time you see the word church, it is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. Ek means out and kaleo means call, called out ones. Every time you see the word church, you can basically translate it <clears throat> the congregation of the called out ones. That's what's being Affirmed, And what I did for the fun of it this week is I just went through a lot of the references where church is used and I read it out loud. The congregation of the called out ones, the congregation of the called out ones, even our word church embodies inside of it the reality of this particular call of God, this effectual call, this call from God that when delivered accomplishes the very thing that God is summoning from the recipient of the call. Now, let's not lose sight of Paul's purpose here. Paul is, in, is encouraging himself. He is encouraging us with how for us God is 
And he's saying God is so for you that he foreknew you before the foundation of the world. He predestined before the foundation of the world to transform you into Christ likeness and to be a part of Christ exalting community. And that all happened before the world was even created. You got to go back before Genesis 1-1 for that to find where that occurred. But now he's actually entering into human history and into the timeline of your own life and your own journey. And he's taking you back and himself back to the moment where we called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And he's just letting us know that on that day, it's not like we came to God and said, I'm calling upon you for salvation. And God heard us and said, whoa, there's there's someone calling upon me. I think I should respond by saving them. That's not what was happening. God was calling us. And he brought us successfully to a point where we freely chose and called upon him. Our calling upon the name of the Lord is merely the byproduct of God's calling of us. I love 1 Corinthians 1, 2 along these lines because you see all of these elements of calling brought together. Look what Paul says. He says, I'm writing to the congregation of the called out ones of God, which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, not so much saints by choice, although, yes, we chose to be saints and to be believers in Christ. But more importantly, we're saints by the calling of God with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So we have both God's effectual call of believers and our response to that effectual call by calling upon him for salvation. God was bent on saving us and performed a miracle in bringing us to a place. We were rebel sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, Unable to even make a right choice to choose Christ, God did a miracle and brought us to a point where here we are actually wanting Jesus, wanting salvation, wanting to repent of our sins, and we're calling upon him for salvation. That's a miracle. Now, most people, in fact, everyone who is at that point calling upon the name of the Lord, they're all asking for God to do a miracle of saving them. They don't realize in that moment that it's already a profound miracle that they're even where they are calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. A mighty miracle. Thousands of miracles have already been done by God to bring them, rebel sinners, dead in their sins, to this point of aliveness and awakening to where they're now calling upon the name of the Lord. That's how for you God is. Now, I know that looking at this, some of you, probably your minds are going in some other directions um, and a lot of questions are being raised Uh, in your minds, and actually some of the questions that may be raised in your mind are actually voiced and answered in Romans chapter 9. But unfortunately, this is a series through Romans 5 through 8. So, um, no, we, we may actually, from the pulpit, try to address some of those questions. What I want to do this morning is is to stick real close to Paul in this moment of worship and as he's relishing realities as a believer of what we can know by way of proof that God is for us. And let's stay here with him and then continue in his train of thought. If uh, hopefully you were in the Sunday school class where some of the very questions you may be asking were addressed, um, but if if not, uh, maybe we can have some copies of uh, of Mike's uh, most excellent Sunday school notes available uh, upon uh, request. Just don't quote from them or even repeat any of the contents without <laughs> Mike's permission um, or a Tebow poster. But uh, a sixth indication that God is uh, for us that is elaborated in this passage is that God justified us. He justified us. You want to know how for you God is? 
He justified you. If you're a believer in Jesus called according to his purpose, he justified you. Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called and these whom he called, he also justified. God has justified us. Now, that might seem like a big word to some, but this is an incredibly precious reality. Paul basically spends Romans 3, 21, uh, all the way through the end of chapter 3, all the way through the length of chapter 4, all the way through the length of chapter 5, doing nothing but talking about this doctrine and reality of justification. And then even after that, he's bringing it up again like he is now, and he's going to bring it up again even in Romans 8. In the coming verses, this was a very meaningful doctrine to the Apostle Paul because of what it meant and what it demonstrated regarding how for us that God is. Let me read a definition by Wayne Grudem of justification. He defines justification as an instantaneous legal act of God. In which he, number one, decides to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. When God justified us on the day that we were converted to Christ, God rendered a decision. And the decision was, I will forever think of your sins, past, present and future as forgiven. And I will forever think of Christ's righteousness as having been done by you, and I will treat you accordingly, and I declare you. I don't just decide this, but I declare you to be righteous in my sight. Wonderful reality. I would add a little bit to this definition, or at least elaborate on it, by saying that in addition to what's stated here, I mean, notice, look at uh, the first part of the definition where God decides to think. Justification is largely something that happens in the mind of God. The location of justification is in the mind of God. It goes to the issue of how God thinks about you. Is that not important to you? How does God think about me? In moments of hardship and trial and moments of failure, how does God think about me right now? That's huge. Uh, And in rendering this verdict... Paul is telling us that that God is deciding to forever think of us this way. God is basically saying, I'm not only making this decision today, but I will forever think of you as forgiven of all your sins, righteous with the righteousness of of Jesus. And I will forever from this day forward, keep this reality in front of me and I will relate to you always every moment accordingly. It's not like God, you know, renders this verdict and then it gets put on some shelf somewhere with the millions of other born again children of God. And then we're trying to relate to God years later and we're like, man, it seems like God's forgotten about this justification decision that he made. No, that never happens. God keeps this reality in front of him. And, and basically in justifying us, God not only says, I'm deciding to think of you, Your sins is forgiven, righteous with the righteousness of Jesus, and I declare you to be righteous in my sight. But I will forever, from this day forward, be governed by this decision in every way, shape, and form. I will never think another thought about you that is not fully governed by this decision. I will never feel another feeling with regard to you that is not shaped and limited and controlled by this decision. You will never see a countenance from me towards you that is not shaped and governed by this decision, I, as your sovereign king, will never relate to you or do anything or allow anything to happen to you in your life that is not fully governed by this decree and this decision that I'm rendering today. He's always governed by this, by his own choice. It's always ever before him. Imagine, as it were, on a day of failure, coming to God and you slink into his presence and wonder, you know, is he going to accept you or reject you? You come into his presence and he's he's sitting there on his throne and he's reading something. And you're like, what what are you reading? And he says, I'm I'm actually reading about you. 
And you're like, dare I ask what it is that you're reading? And the father says, actually, I'm reading the transcripts of your justification and the records of heaven. I've been reading this. What is it that you would like? What, what do you want? Why are you here in my presence? And we come to him and we make our request known to him. We confess our sins. And God, he, he looks at this and he's looking at us. He's looking back at this. He's looking at us. And his whole bearing towards us is totally shaped by this reality that is always before him. I would also hasten to add that on the day of our conversion, when God justified us, it was not a begrudging decision on his part. It was not a decision that was rendered reluctantly. We didn't come to God in our brokenness and confessing and repenting of our sins and calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And God looks at us and he's like, oh, boy. Um, well, I guess I'm bound to what I promised. So, you know what? You're justified and quickly get out of my presence before I change my mind. That's not what he does. Uh, in the second half of Romans five, Paul says justification abounds to us. It, it thunders to us. Uh, God exclaims this decision with pleasure on the day that we came to Christ in brokenness and calling upon his name. If you could find the transcript of what was said by God on the day that you came to him in faith, you would find exclamation points all over the place in the transcripts. He didn't just declare this. He thundered this with enthusiasm, with exclamation points. It comes abounding to sinners. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done or how bad you've messed up, the sins you've committed. God's not looking for righteous people. He's looking for sinners just like you to come to Jesus and to put their trust in him to be their only Lord and Savior. And if you allow God to bring you to that point this morning, God will thunder with enthusiasm the forgiveness of your sins. And declare you righteous with the righteousness of Jesus. The ongoing reality we enjoy as believers is that God is always for us because we've been justified. The fact that he justified us demonstrates he's for us. And now that he's justified us, that is in itself a standing positive proof that he is always as a result of his justification for us. Having been justified by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we are exulting in hope of the glory of God. We have a relationship with God characterized by witness or towardness, us toward him and he towards us. And it's all of grace. We are at peace with God, the luxurious presence of all that is needed for a rich and vital relationship with him because we have been justified. Do you believe this? Do you believe what Paul is saying here as a child of God? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that you are a justified one and all that is true as a ramification of that? Practically speaking, I just want to say that believing that we're justified, that we're forgiven and righteous and therefore accepted by God, who is always for us, believing in those things does not then free us up to turn a blind eye to our sin, where we're now just oblivious of our sin and the way that we sin against God and other people and hurt other people. And we're like, well, I'm forgiven and I'm justified. And so... You know, I just I don't even really have to go deep in understanding my sin. No, actually, the doctrine of justification rightly understood has the opposite effect. It is this doctrine of justification and the forness of God towards us and the acceptance of God towards us. That is what gives us the courage now to face our sin Honestly and squarely, because we now can do so without condemnation. We're, we're able now to look at our sin and even grieve over our sin and be honest and forthright about our sin 
And we're, we're okay doing that because we're not condemned. We're, we're in the arms of a God who is for us. And in his arms, we can go there. We have the courage to look at our sin and repent without condemnation. Do you enjoy this reality? Does justification have this effect upon you? Timothy Keller says it this way. Listen to what he says. He says, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. He goes on to say this, this creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. Christians, justified believers of all people, should, have, should be demonstrating the greatest courage to look honestly and squarely at their sin. Because we can do so without condemnation. We can do so in the embrace of our Father, who loves us and eternally is for us and accepts us. It's exactly why Paul can marinate on justification in Romans 3, 4, and 5. And then in Romans 7, he's confessing sin in multiple layers and even coming back around and repeating himself and acknowledging his sin. How could a man ever have that kind of courage to look at his sin and blame no one else but say it's coming from here? How could he do that? He had the courage to do so because he knew he was justified and uncondemned. And he even comes out of Romans 7 and Romans 8, 1. The first words out of his mouth are, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Let this reality free you up. You know, there, there are people that, and I, I see this in me, we all have this in us that sometimes we're afraid to look honestly at our sin because we're not really sure that God is for us. But if we believe this, if we get this right, then we could have the courage to face our sin as Paul models for us in Romans. And we can help others to do the same. We're pretty much out of time. Let me... Just uh, look at number seven real quick. A seventh indication that God is for us, and that is that God will glorify us. This ought to give you great assurance as a believer. According to the wording here, those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Everyone whom God justifies gets glorified. There is no truly justified believer who ever has or ever will get justified, but then not get glorified. Whoever has or ever will lose his salvation, those whom God justifies, he will see to it that he glorifies them. There's a definition of glorification in your, your notes that were in your bulletin. Some theologians define glorification as simply, um, you know, just that moment on the day of resurrection when we're physically bodily raised and our bodies are clothed with immortality and glory um, and their definition is limited to that uh, moment and what follows. And I think that's that's fair enough. I do think that we would do well to understand glorification more broadly than uh, than that. You even look at Romans 830 and it's like he justifies, he glorifies. Some of you are probably thinking where's sanctification, right? He justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. That's what it should say. But he says, no, he justifies and glorifies. Where is sanctification? The answer to that is sanctification is inside of glorification. 
In fact, um, let's define glorification this way. It's all that God does by way of transforming us into the likeness of his son, culminating in the raising and glorifying of our bodies at the resurrection. Uh, write down 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, as we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Paul would say we're already undergoing our glorification. Sanctification is merely the early stages of our glorification that will culminate on the day of resurrection. God is already changing us and making us like Christ. And so what he's saying is God will execute. He justifies and those he justifies, he will see it through to the end and fully glorify Everyone that he justifies. Paul says in Romans three, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I used to understand that to mean we've all sinned and failed to give God the glory he deserves from our lives. And that's certainly true and stated in this passage. But I think a part of the meaning is all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glorious intentions that God had for us. And yet now as a justified one in Romans 5, 2, Paul says we are jumping up and down, exulting and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. God's glory in me is going to be realized and come to its fullest fruition because I'm a justified one. And I'm already celebrating early, even though it has not fully happened. We've learned in Romans 8, we're going to inherit glory with Christ. And there is a day coming when the sons of God will fully come into glory as God clothes us and transforms us spiritually, bodily with his glory and lavishes his glory upon us. Those whom God justifies, he will glorify. He will make them fully like his son. Bodily, spiritually, in their character, And as we're being changed, even now, day by day, these are but the early whispers of that great glorification, the early stages of this massive glorification that God has in his heart for us. Let me close with this slide. It's been a while since I've quoted from Brad Pitt, Um, but there was a press conference he was at uh, not too long ago when he was talking about his Christian upbringing. I think he was raised Southern Baptist. and and um, But he said this in the press conference. He says, many people find religion to be very inspiring. Myself, I found it very stifling. When I heard him say that, um, I was... And the more I think about it, as I go through Romans 5 through 8, I've thought of him saying that, and I'm thinking, stifling? Stifling? Did, did you read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8? Have you read of the glory that awaits us, the glories that belong to us now, and this is stifling? I know when Brad Pitt and others see the sons of God in their full glory, he will realize that his imagination... And his ambitions were, if anything, way too puny and impoverished. God says, I has not seen nor has ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Stifling. We get to have a relationship with the God of the universe and to live in his presence, in the presence of the palace and the king. Stifling. Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, who's seated at the right hand of God, that's our big brother. And we get to relate to the father on the same terms that he does. Stifling. God is lavishing his glory upon us. In a way that the world could never imagine. And here's what God says. I I have all of this that I want to do. What you have to do is acknowledge your bankruptcy and quit trying to glorify yourself. And come to me in brokenness and emptiness. Call upon my son for salvation. And I will exalt you far higher than anything you would ever dream of right now. That's salvation. And God says, I justify and I will finish the job 
I will execute it and finish the job and fully glorify all those whom I save. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Again, if if you're here today, you've never called on the name of the Lord. I would just beg of you, please just do so today. Come up and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to help you and answer your questions. Our prayer is that God would grant to you repentance and faith and open your eyes to see the beauty of brokenness, the beauty of bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For those of us who are believers, let's pray and ask God to help us to believe Lord, we just come to you and say to you in response to what we've heard, we believe, help our unbelief. When we believe these things, all else seems to begin to fall into place. When we don't believe these basic things, Lord, nothing makes sense. Everything begins to fall apart. We see everything wrongly. Thank you for putting these in front of us. But we're asking you to remove the scales from our eyes. Help me to believe. Help everyone in this room to believe. If we can believe these things, Lord, we would go crazy for you. We, we would go crazy loving you, telling others about this amazing salvation. We would live differently, relate to others differently, love differently, enjoy you differently, respond to hardships differently, respond to frustrations differently. We would battle differently. We would respond to our own failures differently. Save us all, God, from our unbelief. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to give of our offerings to the Lord. Receive these funds, Lord, and do much with them for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said.